Martin and our worship team again for leading us this morning. We will continue our time of worship now around the Word of God and as we do so I would like to ask you to open up to Titus chapter 2. We will continue our, our series there this morning, Titus chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first 10 verses. Titus chapter 2, 1 through 10. The Word of God says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behaviour, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God would not be dishonoured. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, not, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrines of God our Saviour in every respect. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. As we begin our time this morning, as in the text that we've just read, we have three clear motivational clauses. The first, verse 5, it says that the word of God may not be dishonoured. And we as Christians are to make sure and ensure that the word of God is not blasphemed in any way. The second motivational clause is in verse 8, and it says that the opponent may not be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And again, as Christians, we want to make sure that anybody who opposes Christianity will have their mouth closed because they have nothing bad to say about us as Christians in our walk. And thirdly, in verse 10, our motivation and our purpose clause is that we may adorn the doctrines of God our Saviour in every respect. For us as believers, we must adorn the doctrines of God in every respect. The first two motivations are absolutely critical, yes. But this morning I want us to keep this one in mind, adorning the doctrines of God. That word adorn there, it's a great word. In the Greek it is the word cosmeto, which is, as you can guess, where we get the English word cosmetic. And it simply means just to make something beautiful out of chaos. To make something beautiful out of chaos. And in thinking about this for me, and a lot of other blokes here, I think we might need to start using cosmetic products because we have a lot of chaos to make beautiful. <laughs> Thanks, brother. But that's precisely what the word means. As Christians, we are to show the beauty of the power of a saving God in our lives. We are to adorn the doctrines of God and display the beauty of the gospel. And not that the gospel isn't beautiful enough already by itself. The gospel is the most beautiful, perfect, ordered, perfect thing that it could ever be. But as one commentator said, we are to be the flowers that adorn the gospel wreath. The flowers adorning the gospel wreath. Now let me ask the question though. 
How can we adorn the teachings about God? How can we adorn the gospel if we don't look like that we have been saved? Or as one commentator puts it, if I tell you about my hairdresser and you look at me and say, well, your hair's a mess, then you aren't going to go to my hairdresser. If I am going to adorn the the doctrines of God, if I'm going to adorn the teachings about God as a saviour, if I am going to adorn the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I am going to have to demonstrate the salvation that God has given me. We adorn the doctrines of God, we adorn the gospel when we demonstrate deliverance from sin, power over sin and temptation. We adorn the gospel when we live lives that are characterised by purity, power, joy and blessing. I think about adorning the gospel, adorning the doctrines. I can't help but think about the verses in in Matthew chapter 5. And you can turn with me there if you like. Matthew chapter 5, reading verses 14 through 16. It says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so this is what I want us to keep in mind as we look at our text this morning. How are we to adorn the doctrines of God in our own lives? Three things we have at stake when we ask this question. First is our own personal holiness and purity before the Lord. We know that we'll all be held accountable for that one day. Secondly, it's our impact on believers around us. Or how our example is to encourage other believers to do the same. And third and finally, as we ask this question, we are to examine our witness to the world around us, displaying the beauty that is the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our day-to-day lives. Let's keep these things in mind. If you remember from our our previous few sermons in the book of Titus, uh, the book of Titus is, is a letter by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to his young friend and mentee, who is the pastoral delegate on the island of Crete. In chapter 1, Paul has already given us important doctrinal issues, teaching on important doctrinal issues. And, now, and then at the end of chapter 1, he, he addresses the issue of leadership. But now come chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we have a total of five different people groups. We have the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women, and finally we have the employees. This morning we will endeavour to work through both the older men and the older women and the younger men and the younger women. So this morning there is no escaping. One of these categories you will fit into this morning. First we'll look at the older men and the older women. I can always remember my grandma saying, you know you're old when the candles cost more than the cake. (laughs) And Agatha Christie, the famous English novelist, wrote on one occasion that she married an archaeologist. Someone said, why would you do that? And she simply replied, because the older I get, the more he appreciates me. (laughs) Now, let me say just straight up, I am not not going to put you into one of these categories myself. If you think that the title of older applies to you, then great. If not, that's great too. But just to clear anything up, the word older refers to one going grey. So, Pastor, I'm sorry. 
Notice, though, that the first group of people that Paul addresses here are the older people. It's the older generation. I think that's incredibly important because I honestly believe that the foundation of a godly example in the congregation of the church is found in its older generation. Those are the ones who have walked with the Lord for many years. They are the folks who have been through the highs and lows in life only to be refined more like pure gold. Something that saddens me today is when we have many churches even around Adelaide here, that appear to be completely void of an older generation. They might have an older people's service early on a Sunday morning only to make way for the younger generation who have enjoyed a sleep in to come in and, and, and they worship separately. And I honestly believe there is nothing sadder than this because without older men and women, where are the godly examples? Where are the people to encourage righteousness having battled with the same issues themselves? Where are the people to show proper values and proper priorities in this life? They aren't there and they are merely dismissed as being out of touch with the modern day culture. That's a sad state for the church to be in. But Paul encourages Titus here, encourage these, this older generation first. They are the foundation. They are the model for the next generation to follow. As one commentator puts it, the maturity of godliness will be the better diction to the body of Christ. And this is true. Those who can best declare the character of God are those who have walked with him the longest. Now, because I'm not an older man myself, I had to consult with somebody with more years of experience than I. And in that consultation, I asked him very simply a question, what are the negative aspects to ageing? He initially mentioned things like the physical aspect, that the mind is willing but the body is not. And this is a reality, I'm sure. There are physical limitations where before there were none. But more than that, I was interested in the spiritual aspect of ageing. And to this he replied... There is no fool like an old fool. Now, initially I had no idea of what that actually meant, but he went on to explain, if a younger person committed a sin, we would, of course, call them to repentance. We would, um, but in the same time, we would give them some flexibility as they are younger and they are still learning and developing godliness in their lives. However, if an older person committed that exact same sin, it would be ten times worse because with their experience in life, having walked with the Lord for many years, they should have known better. The sin of complacency can and does become an issue. You can, be think, you can begin to think, well, I'm past all that bad stuff, I'm on the home stretch, and so you become complacent and indifferent to sin that previously you may have squashed immediately. A quote that I read this week says, Sometimes we think age equals wisdom, but this is not the general rule of thumb. It should bring wisdom, yes, but only when cultivated from a God-honouring life. And Paul to Titus here, he encourages firstly the older men. Verse 2, he says, Older men, be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and in perseverance. Six encouragements given here in the text, three character traits, three positive virtues that the older man is to display. Firstly, the older man is to be temperate. The word literally means not drunken. Or to expound on it some more, it has the idea of not being indulgent or extravagant in any way. This character, when displayed, is a man who has his priorities right before the Lord. 
Someone whom, after all their life experience, knows the true values in life. The second, the older man, is to be dignified. He is to be serious. He is to be worthy of respect. Not in an old, boring way, but in a way that he's seen to be experienced. He's experienced the serious things of life and he commands the respect that those years of experiences have given him. Thirdly, the older man is to be sensible. He is to have discretion as well as discernment. With the years of devotion to the truth of the scriptures, he is to be sound and he is to be solid in judgment. Then Paul gives three positive virtues. Firstly, he is to, the older man is to be sound in faith. This literally means to be healthy or have complete wellness in faith. An older man who has walked with the Lord for many years, who has been through the highs and lows and who knows that God is always faithful to his word. I can't imagine a greater place to be. I know in the few years that I have walked with the Lord, I can see God's faithfulness, let alone someone who has walked with the Lord for 30, 40, 50, even 60 years in some cases. They should truly be able to confess that they have full confidence, they have complete wellness in the God who has saved them. The second positive virtue is that he is to be sound in love. Now, this is not just love towards God, but also love towards others and those around him. And you can truly see when somebody is sound in love. The flip side to this is that there is nothing sadder when you have an unloving, bitter old man who has no time of day for anybody. Older men are to be sound in love. And lastly, the older man is to be sound in perseverance. The body may be weaker, but the mind is to be sound and strong, more strong than ever, fully relying upon the Lord for everything in life. It is able to endure to the end. To the older women he also encourages, verse 3, older women likewise, or in the same way, are to be reverent in their behaviour, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Here for the older women, he gives four encouragements for them. The first is to be reverent, reverent in their behaviour. The older women are to be reverent in their behaviour. And this is the only time in all the scripture that this word is, is used. This particular word is used. And it literally means to be priest-like or to be holy. You think of the priest of the day. The priest was somebody that could go into the temple of God, into the centre of the temple of God. Someone who could access God, be in the presence of God. And this is the degree, the high calling that older women have. They are to have sacred character and live a godly, godly lives. This kind of woman is, as one commentator puts it, a woman with modesty, discretion, virtue, submission, full of godliness, helping strangers, raising her children in a godly way. Of course, the outward action of holiness, though, is always dependent upon the inward condition of holiness. And so Paul tells Titus here, you must encourage the older women to be holy, holy like the priests who could enter the presence of God. Secondly, the older woman is to not be a malicious gossip. And, oh, sorry. and when thinking about this, I couldn't help but notice the difference between men and women in this sense. Us men, we tend to react to confrontation in a very physical sense, but women seem to act with their words, hence the warning here to ensure that this does not become of you. 
Older women, older women should have their words seasoned with love, grace and encouragement. Thirdly, the older woman is not to be enslaved to much wine. And again, this one is pretty straightforward. Paul says older women are literally to be in control of their senses at all times. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, as Ephesians 5 says. And lastly, for the older women, they are to be teaching, teaching what is good. Or to be able to teach what is good, firstly you must know and understand what is good. And how can you know and understand if you are not in the Word of God? The older woman is to be much in the Word of God, much studying the Word of God, so as to be able to pass on that knowledge that she has earned herself. And that raises a good point that I want to discuss further here. That's the issue of discipleship or mentoring or passing on what we have learnt. And this doesn't just go for the women, but for the men also. The practice of discipleship is something I think that the church has somewhat lost today. This week, a friend told me of a video, and when watching it, I found that it perfectly summed up the church's attitude to discipleship. It was a video from Vody Bockham, and he illustrates it in this way, giving a secular example first, an example from the world. He says, imagine a bricklayer who has been in the industry for 40 plus years. He is at the top of his field, he excels in his job, he is a complete professional. Then a younger man comes along, wanting to be a bricklayer himself. He sees the work that the older man has done, completed, and he asks him if he can teach him and so that the younger man can become the best bricklayer that he can be. Now, generally in the secular world, the older man will accept this. He will actually want to pass on his knowledge willingly to the younger participant. But when it comes to church, you get a younger man go up to an older man, someone who has been a Christian for 30 plus years, and ask for some wise advice on something. Most of the time, quite often, that person can say, no, nah, I'm not a pastor, I'm incapable of giving that advice, go seek out the advice of an elder or someone else other than me. And this is the sad truth of the church today. When it comes to discipleship, we do not want to take up the offer. It is also true the other way around for us younger folk. Younger ones, when we have an older person come up to us seeking to offer their advice or seeking to mentor us, we seem to turn them away for some mere inconvenience sake. So to sum up this section, older men, older women can ask, how is your walk with the Lord? Has complacency made its inroads into your life? To faithfully adore the doctrines of God, please make yourself right with him. Secondly, when it comes to discipleship and encouragement of those who are younger, are you actively seeking out those whom you can encourage with your years of experience? What greater encouragement can there be than when you see someone grow in the Lord whom has learnt from your own experiences? And finally, even in the later stages of life, are you living in such a way that the unbeliever may notice the difference that is within you? And the unbeliever, having nothing negative to say about you, glorifies God himself. Let's ponder these things as we continue in our text. Moving to the second group of people that we'll be looking at this morning, and those are the younger men and the younger women. We're the older generation of the foundation. The younger generation are the up-and-comers. They are the generation, they are the foundation to be. They are the next generation of mothers. They are the next generation of leaders. They are the next generation of whom will one day pass on their knowledge 
to the following generation after them. Now, in this next section, we will be dealing with issues that are somewhat controversial in this day and age. And I found it at this time to be helpful to remind myself just what the Word of God is. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So with this in mind, when we look at our verses back in Titus chapter 2, we must remember that these are not the words of man. These are the words of God, God speaking to us through them. Jesus said himself that the scriptures cannot be broken, so that they are true for all times, for all peoples, in all places. Some folk would seek to dismiss issues of the scriptures and say that they are merely grounded in a cultural context of the day. And when we interpret scripture, this is true, we have to take into account the context of the day. But here to dismiss Titus 2 as merely a cultural issue, we have nothing in the text that would allow us to do that. In fact, we have the opposite. Verse 1 of Titus chapter 2 says, All these instructions are with, are with what accords with sound doctrine. It is vitally important for us to understand today and a culture that simply wants to dismiss the passages of Scripture like this and many others. So, with keeping these things in mind, that this is the Word of God, I will endeavour to preach the text as it says. Firstly, Paul, following the older women, he now addresses the younger women. He does so with seven characteristics for younger women to follow. Firstly, Young women are to be lovers of their husbands. Now, when you first get married, this is like a no-brainer. In fact, that's normally why you get married, because you're a lover of your husband. But as time passes by, you, see that you begin to see that this starts taking commitment. You may need frequent reminders between all the nappies that not only do you stand side by side with your husband, but you're also one with him. Now, a small side note to husbands and prospective husbands. Sometimes, more frequently than not, we do not make ourselves very lovable. I know I fall into that trap often and need to ask forgiveness of my wife. But still the command remains, young women, no matter how unlovable us men are sometimes, we are, you are still to love us as your husbands. You are to display and adorn the doctrines of God in this way by loving us, your husbands. This is not necessarily an emotional kind of love, but rather it is a sacrificial kind of love. It is a love of will and deep commitment to one another. As that quote by Vodi Bokum, love is an act of the will that is accompanied by emotion, not led by emotion. That's a healthy relationship. This is the kind of love that Philippians 2 talks about when it says, If there is love, then do this. Let no man look on the things of his own life, but rather the things of another's. Let each one esteem others better than himself. It is a sacrificial, it is a humbling, it is a self-effacing kind of love. And there is days when, when this is hard, and that's why it's important for the older women to come alongside and mentor these young women in how to love their husbands unconditionally. And you see the model of discipleship played out again. 
With this kind of love displayed for a husband and a wife, for a wife and a husband, and vice versa, it is a beautiful thing, and it is a beautiful adorning of the doctrines of God. Second only to husbands, young women can adorn the doctrines of God by being lovers of their children or loving their children. Now, again, when, when children come to you and they are all young and, and sweet with smiles and lots of cuddles and you might think, how could I ever lose this kind of love? But believe me, the last 24 hours when there's vomit, diarrhea and crying after long sleepless nights, being a lover of your child can be pretty difficult <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Motherhood is not an easy thing. There are days when you just wish you could palm them off to somebody else. Even in these times, it is important to be loving your children. Now again, this, this kind of love is not just an emotional love. It's not just an, a, uh, an outward emotion, but rather it, is a, it, it extends to so far as, as how you raise your children. You are to raise them in the ways of the Lord, in fear and admonition of Him. And there is nothing more loving that you can do for your children than this. With all of the things that, that people can see that you love, the restaurants that you love, the sports teams that you might love, the drinks you love, the clothing that you love, out of all these things, can people, other people see that you truly are a lover of your husband and a lover of your children? And would they guess that from your attitude? Thirdly, the young women are to be self-controlled or uh, sensible, as some might have in their translations. And this simply means to be sound in judgment. It means to have common sense or right thinking, right priorities. And again, the older women are to come alongside and encourage that of the younger women. Just encourage the, the normal processes of, of common sense and, and, and right thinking and making sound judgment, applying wisdom in their lives. Fourth, the young women are to be pure. That is, they are to be morally pure. They are to be virtuous. They are to be faithful to their husbands. This idea, it has the idea of discreetly controlling all your passions. Women who make a claim to godliness have their passions under control. They wouldn't do anything that excites lust except for their husbands. They wouldn't do anything to draw attention to themselves. Holy women have always conducted themselves in this way. And the young women are to be pure just like that. Fifth, and this is the topic that we find somewhat sensitive in this day and age, this is the main point that we merely like to dismiss as a, as a cultural issue or we try to find some alternate meaning in the text in order to explain it away. And this is the issue of being a worker at home. As we discuss the issue, I am seeking to do this with as much sensitivity as possible. I know in our congregation we have many professional women, women who are well-educated, who are trained, who are either active in the workplace or have been so for many years. And not for one moment would I ever tell any one of you to leave that all behind just to follow this verse. It would be hypocritical of me, as in my own family. My wife, she is a professional woman, and we are fleshing and working out these things in our own lives, ourselves. But as we talk about this issue of, of being workers at home, the feminist world that we live in today would say that being a homemaker is demeaning or belittling to a woman. It is taking her rights away. 
It's a quote that I found this week from Vivian Gornick. She's a prominent feminist author. And she says, Being a housewife is an illegitimate profession. The heart of feminism is to change that idea. End quote. I know in my own home growing up, my mother modelled the role of a homemaker. And she did it with such professionalism that I could never, ever, ever say that it was an illegitimate or demeaning position for her. But that's the sad truth of the society that we live in today. We have a push, this massive push for equality. And the people that are pushing for the equality, they fail to realise and understand what we as Christians actually believe about men and women. Men and women are spiritually equal in the eyes of God. Galatians 3.28 tells us that. But, and it's important to, to, to remember this, men and women have very different roles as defined by the Word of God. Very different roles as defined by the Scriptures. Spiritual equality does not mean incompatibility with God-ordained roles of headship and submission in the church, in society, or in the home. And what we have here in our text in Titus this morning is the ideal biblical model for the Christian home, in that it perfectly sums up the roles of men and the roles of women as is laid out for us in other parts of Scripture like Ephesians 5, where the husband is the head, he is the provider for his family. And you might go on to respond with, what about the Proverbs 31 woman? She goes out and works, and, and yes, that is absolutely true. The Proverbs 31 woman, she left home. She, had, she went out, she bought, she bought a field, she prepared that field. She went home, uh, she left her home, she went afar to find things that would help her family even possibly bringing in an income of sorts. That woman did what she needed to do, but the whole time she was doing these things, her primary focus was on the home. That's where she poured out her life. The Proverbs 31 woman poured out her life at her home. She got up early, she went to bed, for the, she went to bed late for the sake of her home. She was a homekeeper. That was the sphere of her responsibility. And in the same way in Titus, the home is the, is the realm of a woman's responsibility. The home is what remains the constant and ongoing priority. Everything focuses on that. If the home is suffering because of a woman working, then perhaps there needs to be a rethinking of priorities. There's always the questions raised, what of the, the single mum or what of the family who can't afford to, to live without two wages? And that one is especially prominent. And there are a number of factors that go into bringing about this situation and it calls for wisdom, maybe even seeking out the wisdom from the church elders in order to gain a solution. But the fact still remains that a woman's priority is her home. If working doesn't impact your home, if it enhances and enriches your life at home, if it accomplishes all the spiritual goals, then that's great. That's between you and the Lord. That's between you and your husband and your family. But all the while, the main point that is trying to be brought out here is that women have to have their priorities right when it comes to a home life, work life balance. And I think that we see that displayed very well in many of the women of our church here this morning. You are to understand the plan and pattern that God has laid out in his word. But the specifics of how it fleshes out in your home are for you 
and for the Lord and for your family to work through. Sixth, the young woman is to be kind. Again, this one is pretty straightforward. She is to be gentle. She is to be soft-natured. She is to be caring for her home. She is to be caring for her church, her friends. And finally, seventh, for the women, they are to be subject to their husbands. And this one can almost be as controversial as the one previously. God has ordained it so that men and women have very different roles in his creation. But again, that does not make one inferior to the other. Rather, for the sake of a God-glorifying society, God has ordained it that men are the head of their homes and women are to be submissive to their leadership. It's as simple as Ephesians 5, where it says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. He himself being the saviour of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be also to their husbands in everything. You know, when thinking about the idea of, of headship, the roles of headship and submission, can't help but think of the, the illustration of the rally car driver. If you've ever seen or, or watched a, a rally race on TV or, or been to a rally race in person, you notice that there are always two people in the car. You have the driver and you have the co-driver. Both are equally important when it comes to winning the race. The co-driver has the map, they, have the, they give the directions, they are constantly staying in, in control, uh, they are constantly uh, in communication rather with the driver. But ultimately, the responsibility of both their safety comes down to the driver himself. If something goes wrong in the race, it's not the co-driver's fault, it's the responsibility of the driver. Now some might say, well, my husband's just plainly a bad driver and he makes the wrong decisions or he's, he's failing in his role. And these are common responses. But the fact still remains that he is the head of the house. He is the driver and the responsibility and the consequences for any decisions will fall back upon his head. That should not be a bondage to women, but rather a freedom. That should be a, a sheltering not in a bad way, but in a good way. As we finish looking at the younger women and, and move to the younger men, can I ask, ladies, in order for you to faithfully adorn the doctrines of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, are there any changes that you need to make in your own personal life? Are there things that need to be put right in order for you to be right with the Lord, that you might walk in personal holiness with him? Secondly, ladies, there are many older women in this church who have gone before you in life experiences and I would ask that you would seek them out as, as godly mentors, as wise mentors, that you might develop a God-honouring relationship with them and grow together in the Lord. And thirdly, modelling these characteristics, you will be in stark contrast to a woman of the world. So use these things as an opportunity to share Christ into someone's life. Finally, we move to the younger men. And we read in, in verse 6, says, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. We see in these verses, we have young men, the example of Titus himself. Paul is encouraging Titus here. First, 
We are called to be sensible. We are called to be similar to the young men and women, sensible, the idea of being sensible, but obviously in relation to different issues. To be sensible literally means for us guys to be in control of ourselves, for us to develop self-mastery, self-control and balance, for us to get our faculties and our appetites in the correct order, for us to have our longings and our desires under control. We are to harness those things so as to develop discernment and sound judgment. Now that in all things there, in, in the, at the end of, or the beginning of verse 7, I believe that that should be at the end of verse 6, in saying that we are to be sensible in all areas of our life, in all areas of our day-to-day walk, we are to be sensible. And when thinking about this, I couldn't help but, but go to the book of Psalms, to 119 verse 9, where it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? The answer is very simple, by keeping it according to the word of God. So the call is for us men to be sensible, to be sound in judgment. And that does not come from some innate sense, but rather it comes through the guidance from the Word of God itself. If we are not studying it, if we are not reading it, then our ability to be sensible is severely compromised. Secondly, we are called to be an example of good deeds. Now, as soon as we talk about the idea of of good deeds, we have to be very careful critical to the understanding of good deeds is that in no way, shape or form do they save us or make us right with the Lord. We are, as God's people, saved from eternal condemnation by God's grace through faith, the grace of God appearing in verse 11, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the greatest motivation that we could ever need towards good deeds. And again, not that it saves us, but rather that it brings the Father glory. And so Paul encourages Titus here to live out the gospel. Live out the change that has taken place on the inside. Show yourself before God and before others to be an example of good deeds. Thirdly, along with good deeds comes soundness or purity in doctrine. And that's just as it sounds. Correct thinking or correct understanding of doctrines and how it applies to -to day-to-day living in our lives. Always remember speaking to uh, another Christian bloke at a barbecue once. Um, upon initial discussion with him, I believed him to be a genuinely solid guy. He was studying at Bible college. But then I asked him what of his doctrinal or theological position. And he says his response was, I love it, his response was, Yeah, man, I don't think we need all that theological mumbo-jumbo. All we need is Jesus. We just need to worship him, full stop. And sadly, this thought is creeping into the evangelical church today. The doctrine is merely a divisive thing and it is to be left behind and we are to have our focus on something else. My initial response to this bloke must have been one of shock because he said, by the look on your face, you don't agree with me. And I don't because theology, doctrine is to be foundational to all that we believe and all that we do. How can we worship a God that we know nothing about if we are not studying the scriptures, if we are not in the word of God? Theology is not just for the academic Christian, but rather it is foundational for our Christian walk and our Christian life. And that is what Paul is encouraging Titus here to do. Fourthly, the young man is to be dignified. He is to be dignified. He is to be serious about life, knowing that it honours God. That doesn't mean that he is to be boring or, or not serious about life. He is able to have fun. He is able to, to enjoy life. 
But the young man is to understand the difference between what is important in life and what is trivial. Fifth and, and finally, young men, we are to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. And again, this one is, is pretty straightforward. Whether in formal teaching or informal conversation, our speech is to be sound, it is to be healthy, it is to be edifying, it is to be life-giving, it is to be appropriate. And Paul says it must be beyond reproach. So men, can I ask the same questions of you? Are there things that you need to make right with the Lord this morning? You, as young men, are the next generation of biblical leaders in this church and in the home. And so, can I ask that you would seek out the faithful wisdom of the older men of this church? If you do not have a mentor or, or somebody whom can encourage you in the things of the Lord, can I ask you to put that right today before you leave? And finally, when following these character traits, you will be so vastly different to a man of the world that others will notice and others will ask of you. And that is your chance to be bold. Christ. And the same goes to all of us here. In order to be faithful in adorning the doctrines of God, then we can do that first by walking in personal holiness, second by developing a church of discipleship whereby we grow and mature in the Lord together, and thirdly by being the light that shines forth from this dark, lost world. That's my prayer for us this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God whom has looked down out of eternity, Lord, and has called us to yourself. There is no greater thing than, than that, Lord, to be washed by the blood of Christ. We thank you for that. And we just pray, Lord, this morning, as we have looked at your text, that, that you would help us to be right in our walk before you. You would help us to develop discipleship amongst us at this church and that you would help us to be faithful in witnessing to the world around us, Lord. That is our, our cry to you this morning, Lord. Give us the grace and peace and strength to be able to do that faithfully for you, Lord. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. For our benediction this morning, I'll ask you to rise. It's from 1 Thessalonians. says, Now may the God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before God our Father and at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen.